ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database, which if you've been listening for any amount of time now, you know that means we're going to take a look at some uh, website traffic data and analytics and see if we can't glean some insight into what advisors and investors are thinking about right now. And I'll tell you, this week, Tom has flagged an area that is sticking out like a sore thumb in their data, which is an enormous spike in interest around commodity ETFs. And we'll get into this, but I don't think it's anything enlightening to say there are clearly concerns around inflation, and commodities, of course, are often viewed as a pretty good inflation hedge. So we'll walk through Tom's data. I also have a few thoughts on inflation hedging in a portfolio. Uh, there are several ETFs which have caught my attention, even outside the commodity ETF complex. So this should be a good conversation on a very relevant topic for investors right now. I'll then be joined by Brandon Clark, Director of ETF Business at Federated Hermes, who currently manages nearly $650 billion in assets. Uh, my guess is many investors are probably familiar with Federated from their uh, money market funds. If you look out of that $650 billion, a huge chunk is money market funds. But uh, back in August, they filed for their first two ETFs. These are both bond ETFs. And here again, you have yet another large active manager, one who's been focused more on mutual funds, now getting involved in ETFs. I'm looking forward to this conversation because Brandon offers a unique perspective. He was previously head of ETF capital markets at Vanguard. He then helped start up Lake Mason's ETF business, and he's now tasked with doing the same for Federated. So we'll discuss why Federated's getting involved in ETFs how he thinks they can compete, uh, because they are late to the party, right? I, I think he would tell you that. 
Uh, and then I also want to find out where Brandon sees white space in ETF product development. And then to close this week, a, a tremendous guest for you, Luke Oliver, Managing Director and Head of Strategy at Crane Shares, who, in my opinion, Crane Shares has two of the biggest ETF stories this year. One is KWeb, the Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, which, listen to this, KWeb is down nearly 40% this year, but it's taken in nearly $8 billion in assets. I, I mean, you never see that. And then the other ETF is one of the most successful new launches over the past two years, the Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF, ticker KRBN, which that's taken in over a billion dollars this year and is actually one of the best performing ETFs. So we'll dive into both of those this week. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. Good morning, Nate. Great to be here. All right. So again, whenever you're on the podcast, we do like to look through this lens of website data and analytics you have from ETF Trends and ETF Database and just discuss what it's telling us about the current mindset of advisors and investors. And I think, you know, I love this stuff because I feel like investors are always trying to figure out what other investors are doing. And here we can just look at the data, right? We, we don't have to guess. Uh, so as I mentioned at the top, you have flagged an area that's sticking out like a sore thumb which is commodity ETFs. And so let's start there. Give us the data, and then we can certainly get into breaking this all down. Well, they, it's, it's so true. Everyone is trying to figure out what everyone else is doing, and, and I'm no different. I'm always trying to keep my finger on the pulse, and, and, I, and one of my best follows on Twitter is you. And so why we're drilling into the commodity space is this you know, broad conversation around inflation. And, you know, the degree to which it's going to persist, the, the rate at which it's going to um, continue going, and how advisors are positioning their client portfolios given that. And, and part of this is, is part science, uh, you know, data, but part of it is the art of it. And I couldn't help but notice that you've traveled a little bit recently, and we're out in Las Vegas. And so did you see any <laughs> signs in your travels? Have the penny slots become nickel slots, or or was there any you know discernible inflation that you saw as you were out uh, visiting the strip and, and thereabouts? You know what? That's what I get for posting on Twitter, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I, I enjoy it, but everybody can see what I'm doing. My own fault. You, you know, the funny thing is, honestly, I think I'm still recovering from that trip. I was out there way too long. Uh, just You shouldn't be in Vegas as long as I was. But I, I guess to answer your question, yes, I can report back that inflation is absolutely alive and real. I, I mean, I would be embarrassed to tell you how much my wife and I spent just on food and drinks out there, which that's typically not my style. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a penny pincher. But we went out there sort of last minute the Chiefs were playing in that uh, Sunday night game. And, you know, you only live once, so, uh, so we decided to go for it. But, yeah, it, it was expensive. It's noticeable. I think just like everybody's seen at the grocery store. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You can't you can't go through the meat aisle or, or the gas station and start to feel it. And so obviously, Nate, you know, to get you know back to a more serious note and, and what we're trying to do at, at ETF Trends and Database is ensure that we're putting the right content in front of advisors at the right point in time so that they're having the most well-informed conversations with their clients about the things that are most important to them. And that can be twofold. You know, you know part of the advisor's job, as I'm sure you'd well attest, is, is um, dampening the emotional element of, uh, you know, the volatility that can spike given certain headline risk or things that are going on in, in the, the mainstream media and either addressing it with the client or making sure that you're talking about the strategy and the long-term nature that, that you're approaching the, the portfolio construction. And so what we're starting to see more and more, and, and I want to I bring to the surface to set the table a little bit, is a recent polling question. And, and as you know, we're in market polling advisors and, and, and trying to figure out what is most important to them through a whole you know, host of mechanisms. Obviously, we're looking at all the implicit data. Where are advisors going on, on the websites? What articles are they reading? What tools are they engaging with? What tickers are they researching? But we're also doing that through our webcast experience where we're in webcast, we're asking them polling questions. And so a recent polling question, which macroeconomic event do you think has the biggest impact on the markets in the next 12 months? And so political turmoil, government deficits, inflation, rising interest rates, or weakness in the U.S. dollar, those were the five um, answers that the advisor community had an opportunity to select. 41%, by far the largest uh, proportional amount, selected inflation, you know, followed by rising interest rates, 25%, political turmoil, 18%, government deficits, 12%, and then, and then a nominal amount to weakness in the U.S. dollar. And, and we're seeing this across a whole host of, of ways in which we're interacting with that community, Nate. You know, another example is, you know, we, we asked this, uh, a different advisor community, and we'd be talking in, in the mid, mid hundreds. So between four and 600 advisors are answering these polling questions. We're doing them, you know, three to four times a week. And, and the question was, do you see inflation being prevalent over the next few years? And 81% said yes. Um, and, and so I, I, I bring that to the surface to, you know, mix together this concept of implicit data, data that's, you know, we're deriving based on website usage patterns versus explicit data, what literally advisors are explicitly telling us. And then the third thing, and I, I think we all love to dissect this as well, is, is bringing up the concept of flows. And so, you know, I think that one thing that really, you know, stood out to me was was first and foremost the engagement or the implicit uh, advisor attention to the commodity space, specifically in October 2021 versus, you know, a year prior. And that was followed by flows. You know, nearly $600 million went into the commodity complex last month, um, which was a pretty big departure from, you know, the year-to-date flows of, of almost, you know, down uh, $3.5 billion. So that's where... You know, I, I really wanted to drill in, and, and so that's that's kind of you know setting the stage for why we were looking at that commodities data, but then also would want to provide an opportunity to talk about um, other ways in which advisors are approaching you know this this potential inflationary risk and how they're conversing with their clients about it. Yeah, and I want you to get to the uh, data and some specific tickers. I'll just add that from my perspective. I don't think there's any question the biggest topic on investors' minds right now is inflation and whether it's real or transitory. I mean, that's the biggest debate. 
And I think it's concerning, clearly, because inflation can be an investor's worst enemy. It's basically a hidden tax on a portfolio. It just erodes value over time. And if you think about this from an advisor's perspective, uh, especially younger advisors, they haven't really had to deal with this uh, over who, who knows how long. It's been a while since inflation's really reared its, its ugly head. And so it, it makes sense that this topic has come to the forefront. Well, that's right, Nate. And, and, you know, so inflation is certainly top of mind, but it's certainly not the only thing. And, and I'll just provide one more, you know, piece of polling data. There's a lot of other concerns in advisors' minds, and, and it's really a confluence of um, these these things that are driving the conversation with their clients. And so we asked we asked our advisors, you know, what, what are you most concerned about over the next year? Market valuations, finding income, increasing taxes, and inflation. And again, inflation did win, but only slightly over the valuation conversation. And those two things can be somewhat inextricably linked. But that said, you know, people need to, um, you know, kind of take a position there or, or construct a portfolio based on that. You know, the, the two laggards there were finding income, which is still, you know, top of mind, and then increasing taxes. But as, as we drilled into the commodity space, Nate, I, I think that one thing that was really interesting and there was a bit of a departure from, you know, uh, a typical relationship that we see that we'll talk about in another context is that um, the, the interest in, in any of the oil products as it relates to commodities, you know, really, really spiked in October and has been spiking in the third quarter. So obviously the, you know, the granddaddy there is, is, is the USCF, USO, you know, about a two and a half billion dollar fund, but it's actually seen... Um, some pretty negative flows over the last year or so, but the interest from advisors is up, you know, more than 100% year over year. And that story plays true in a number of the different, you know, ways in which you can play the commodity sector via the ETF wrapper. Um, so I, I wanted to flag that first and, and see if you had any thoughts or ideas around that as well. No, I mean, when it, first of all, it makes sense to me that something like USO would be out there. The, the way I view individual commodity ETFs like that, especially as inflation hedges, is, well, well, let me say this. First, I think the narrative here is pretty simple, right? That as the prices of goods and services rise and there's a lot of demand, so too uh, do the things needed to produce them, right? At a basic level, if demand exceeds supply, then prices are going to go up. So that part makes sense, whether we're looking at oil or uh, other inputs in, into goods. But, you know, if you look at the data historically, it tells you that commodities um, are a pretty good hedge against unexpected inflation. But I think the trick is owning commodities in portfolio, you know, these can go a long period of time without doing anything. And so even looking like, like at something like USO or some of the other oil ETFs, I feel like they're more tactical in nature. And if you're an advisor and you feel like you're set up to to manage that, great. But if not, I just think you have to be careful owning individual commodity ETFs or at a minimum, maybe consider something more broad based, right? Not individual oil or natural gas ETFs, but perhaps something like the Invesco Optimum uh, Yield Diversified Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker PDBC. Yeah, well, it, exactly, Nate. And then and you think about, you know, the tactical nature of, of something like an oil position and then contrast that to another area that we saw a big increase in advisor interest, which was all all around the gold um, ETF suite, uh, you know, across, across uh, you know, issuer agnostic. And so obviously GLD is, is the, the behemoth there. 
but all up and down, you know, the, the size spectrum, you know, there's the iShares product, IAU, there's GLDM, which is another State Street product. Um, all of them saw really large increases. And, and that sort of speaks to the concept of probably a more strategic allocation. And maybe, you know, to your point earlier about the advisor community, uh, you know, especially the younger advisor community, not necessarily experiencing a, a lot of the, these inflationary pressures. You know, I think that it speaks to the fact that that, you know, two to five percent allocation in a portfolio as a long term hold of gold, probably more and more people are looking into that, especially people who, you know, the last 10 years or so may have not been so inclined to like really consider that as part of their portfolio, which obviously opens up a good you know, conversation around, you know, how well uh, a long term gold position does in inflationary times. You know, there's the, the concept that's a bit of a second half player as we get deeper into inflation. How do you approach that one, Nate? How, how do you think about that? And, and, you know, if you've got a client asking about a gold position, how do you respond to that? And, and, and it, has that changed over time? Yeah, I mean, first, I would say that I, I agree uh, gold is more of a strategic asset in, in a portfolio. Now, I, I do view gold a little bit differently just because, if I look at the data, gold hasn't always been a great inflation hedge. Um, I think you own gold because it's an uncorrelated asset. It, it does whatever it wants. It can be a crisis hedge. Uh, it can be an inflation hedge, or it, it might do something else altogether. But my point is, I, I think you you just have to be prepared for gold to march to the beat of its own drummer, right? Uh, but I, I think just pulling back, I, I think whether we're talking gold or individual commodity ETFs, I don't think any of these are surefire return generators. And when we, we talk about com individual commodity ETFs, and I think about natural gas and, and oil, we haven't even gotten to the discussion around futures contracts and contango mm -hmm. and those sorts of things, which is an entirely separate discussion. But no, w with gold, I think clearly people are going to look at gold as an inflation hedge. I think there is some substance to that. But gold has just reacted so oddly to me over the, the, the near term here. I think, uh, you know, we I think we've maybe talked about this on the podcast, how crypto's impacting gold. Uh, is, is that changing the dynamics of it? So gold's interesting to me, but I do think gold offers portfolio benefits of a strategic nature longer term because it is uncorrelated. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and it, maybe if we move on a little bit from the commodity space and talk about um, maybe one of the more down the middle of the fairway or most obvious ways to um, you know, provide some inflation protection within a portfolio, just to conclude, you know, you mentioned PDBC, you know, which is a bit of the, the, the granddaddy of a diversified way to get exposure to, uh, you know, a whole host of commodities. That was actually another ETF that I had flagged as, as seeing a significant amount of in interest and has gotten quite a bit of flows over the last year and, and you know, bumping up against the $7 billion product. So um, interesting that you noted that one as well. But Nate, turning our attention to another way to sort of slice and dice this data, one of the things that we look at is to plot um, on an XY axis, you know, the amount of flows versus advisor engagement. And so there's, there's actually a really interesting Bloomberg article recently that drilled into 18 ETFs that had the word inflation within the ticker symbol, or sorry, within the, within the, the name of, of, the, of the product or within the ticker symbol. So obviously all the tips related products are gonna, are gonna bubble up to the surface. And that, that was interesting when I was looking at that, because up and to the right, so a lot of flows and a lot of engagement, 
you kind of saw what you would expect to see. You see VTIP, the Vanguard Short-Term Inflation Protected Securities ETF, and also STIP, another sort of shorter-term duration way in which to play the tips market. They were up into the right, as were TIP, the iShares Tips Bond ETF, and SCHP, the Schwab equivalent or, or, or thereabouts. Those were the four that sort of clustered up into the right in terms of getting a lot of flows and a lot of engagement. And so, you know, you kind of, uh, you know, break those two into the, the, the two ways that they naturally um, come together is, is sort of the shorter term, um, more, you know, tactical way of, of, of uh, the application versus a bit of a longer term strategic hold in TIP and SDHP. I thought that was interesting. Any, any thoughts there? Well, I guess I would say, first of all, it makes sense to me that tips would be up and to the right, because I think for many advisors, tips are the first thing that comes to mind in terms of inflation hedging a portfolio. So that makes sense. I did see that Bloomberg piece uh, from Katie Greenfield last week, and I, I think she had mentioned that every ETF with the word inflation in its name or description, um, it, as you mentioned, a lot of tips ETFs, they've all had inflows this year. Uh, but on those four mm -hmm. ETFs that you mentioned, the one thing that I would I would say here is that the shorter duration tips make a lot of sense to me because you're not taking on that interest rate risk, that that duration risk. If you look at something like TIP or SCHP, the Schwab U.S. Tips ETF, those have a longer duration. And so even though they have inflation protection, if rates were to pop, those could face a, a pretty significant headwind. So so being shorter mm -hmm. duration, you can still get that inflation protection without taking on as much rate risk. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And, and again, that's something where, you know, we flagged uh, in October the fact that we had this spike in advisor interest, uh, you know, in the, in the months leading up. And then in October, when you break down the, the broader fixed income suite, um, you know, six and a half billion dollars flowed into you know, inflation protected products, which are largely the, those tips products that we're talking about. Um, but a couple others just to, uh, you know, noteworthy as it relates to those, those 18 ETFs that have inflation in the name. Um, and it's, it's great that you've got Luke coming on. And also, thank you for mentioning Katie. This is Katie's article who, who does excellent work at Bloomberg. Um, but you've got, you know, Luke from, from Crane Shares. But there's, there's, an, there's a product called the Quadratic Interest Rate Volatility and Inflation Hedge ETF, IVOL which has been an, on an absolute tear from a asset gathering perspective, uh, nearly, you know, $2 billion, uh, sorry, nearly $3 billion in the last year. The fund is only, uh, you know, it was only incepted uh, you know, May, in May 2019 and, you know, is nearly a, a $4 billion product. And so, you know, Nancy Davis is just, uh, you know, really caught lightning in a bottle there. And, and that showed up as, as a lot of advisor interest. And also, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of flows there. The, the other noteworthy ticker is INFL, the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. So really hitting that one between the eyes and the name, you know, so this ETF is designed, um, you know, to perform well, you know, based on its constituent parts uh, in an inflationary environment. A relatively new fund, not even a year old, just launched in January of this year and, and you know, nearly has a billion dollars in, in only 11 months. So it is it is products that are, you know, chipping away at, at this, um, you know, potential risk that advisors has flagged as top of mind that are garnering a lot of flows. And I think the only thing that I would, you know, impart as I do all the time, Nate, is that as people are unpacking 
these products, open up the hood, understand what's you know underneath, understand how it's going to perform in different environments, and just just know what you own. And ultimately, you know that's something that uh, you know the educational process and, and advisors engaging in this type of research is going to be really really helpful for their to, them to understand, and then for them to translate to their clients. No, that's extremely well said. And I'll just add the two ETFs that you mentioned there at the end, INFL and, and IVOL. To me, those are two of the biggest ETF success stories this year. I, I mean, you look at that Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. It's a top 10 ETF launch and approaching a billion dollars. In As you were mentioned, I mean, the idea here is you want to own companies with pricing power, and that have relatively fixed costs on the back end and, and smaller labor labor costs in terms of variable costs. Uh, and, and hopefully, if we get into an inflationary environment, that'll perform well. But that's had a tremendous amount of uptake. And then IVOL, I, I don't know what more you can say about this. I think when this ETF came out, I, I don't want to say there were doubters, but I, I don't think anybody would have expected this thing to be at $3.5 billion in assets. And this owns like 90% tips, SEHP, I believe. And then it holds options that increase in value as the, the yield curve steepens. Uh, again, another inflation hedge in a portfolio. And I'll just add, Tom, before I let you go, I mean, you look at the latest consumer price index reading, that showed a 6.2% year-over-year jump in October, which was the biggest rise in over 30 years. And you, you look at a lot of bonds. I mean, many bonds now have negative real yield. So this is going to continue to be a, a real challenge in terms of portfolio application. And, I, I, you know, I, I love this data, as I mentioned at the top, because just seeing what advisors are looking at and how you approach this challenge of inflation, this is going to be the big riddle to solve moving forward. Yeah, absolutely, Nate. It, it sure is, and we're seeing that now, and, and we're seeing it persist, you know, through even the November data. And it's uh, as I mentioned, there's there's no shortage of um, challenges for the advisor. You know, if you look at valuations and and the, you know the constant uh, search for yield, and then you know you bring in the concept of where inflation and, and rates are are headed. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's never been a better time for advisors to be, you know, have all the tools at their disposal to do the research that's requisite for, um, you know, constructing portfolios in the way that makes sense for their clients. So, um, you know, it, it, exciting times, but also challenging times and, and um, look forward to being somewhat of a help along the way. Well, Tom, always fun chatting. Uh, if you bought a Thanksgiving meal this week, I saw that the cost of that is up on average between 15 and 20 percent this year, uh, back, back with the oh, inflation theme. But uh, in, enjoy the weekend. Great stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye for now. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com slash sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
I'm now joined by Brandon Clark, Director of ETF Business at Federated Hermes, who's a leading global investment manager with nearly $650 billion in assets. And perhaps more noteworthy to listeners of this podcast, they are in the process of entering the ETF space. They currently have two ETFs in registration with the SEC, a short-term corporate bond ETF and a short-term high-yield bond ETF. And from my perspective, I feel like the messaging has been pretty clear from Federated Hermes that these two ETFs are just the first of what will ultimately be a very robust ETF lineup. Uh, Brandon is now on the line with me from Philadelphia. Brandon, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's jump right in. Uh, As I mentioned, Federated Hermes, $650 billion in assets, one of the larger asset managers out there. What took so long to get involved in ETFs, uh, and why enter the space now? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question, Nate. And I, I'd actually probably say it the other way around, which is, man, it seems like Active is uh, is just starting to go. Good time to get in. <laughs> Fair. Um, you, you know, I, 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 it's funny. As I was, I was, I was thinking about this, we're we're coming up on almost thirty years of ETFs, right? If you go back to when they first when they first started, and. Uh, but yeah, 30 years later, you know, active managers are starting to come into the business. And uh, when you look at the data, it's, uh, you know, we're just pushing $300 billion relative to what actually lives in the uh, active mutual fund space. Well, talk more about Federated Hermes business overall, because my sense is most investors think of money market funds when it comes to Federated. So I'm curious, how big is that segment of the business? Uh, how could that translate to ETFs, if at all? And then just talk about the other areas of the business. Yeah, so the, the money market business is obviously probably the what is the largest part of our franchise. Um, but when you look at our fixed income business and our equity business, the fixed income business, both both fixed income and our equity are right around $100 billion each. Uh, so so those two franchises are are not small by any means um the money market business is obviously the lion's share of that of those assets uh you know when it comes to etfs that doesn't necessarily translate directly from a money market etf or a money market fund to a money market etf but a lot of our experience in money markets and the shorter duration short end of that curve will will definitely bode well as we get into the ETF uh, in the ETF sphere. Yeah, and I mentioned the two uh, bond ETF filings, which I know you can't speak to those directly, but is the goal here to develop a, a suite of actively managed ETFs? Will the focus be on fixed income? Will it be on, on equities? I don't expect you to give us the full <laughs> roadmap here, but in general, talk about the strategy in approaching the ETF market. Yeah, the approach in the ETF market, I think, is, you know, really important from our perspective because as clients' preferences have evolved over the last 30 years, more clients want to access investment expertise uh, in a vehicle that makes sense to their client. And from an asset manager's perspective, us delivering our investment expertise, we've got to be able to meet clients where they want to be met. Right, so if they want to use ETFs, or if they want to use mutual funds, or SMAs, or commingled trusts, we want to be able to offer that expertise. From a purely from a strategy perspective, 
you know, our view is existing strategies at some point likely will end up being in the ETF wrapper, right? So we'll deliver our expertise in that vehicle. But we'll also look to develop new strategies um, as we as we look for where some of the white spaces are within our product lineup and look to say what's the right delivery vehicle, the right mechanism to get it to our clients. And, um, you know, given the, the evolving preference towards ETFs, we might lean towards ETFs more often than not, at least in the near term, uh, and, and be able to deliver that. You know, again, our investment expertise to clients and in the, in the, where they want to be met with the vehicle. You mentioned white spaces. You know, look, right now, as I know you're keenly aware, we have, what, 2,700, 2,800 ETFs on the market. Where do you think there's white space? Like, where do you think Federated can differentiate and find a path to success? Great question. I think this comes back to how we started off, which is you've got less than three hundred billion in uh, in fixing, or I'm sorry, in actively managed ETFs. The reality is that's heavily concentrated in, you know, where I'll say where the active ETF business started, which is in the ultra short space. And we've got a couple issuers that have come out with actively actively managed equity products that have gathered significant assets in a short period of time. But the reality is, um, the reality is, there's really not a lot of offerings in inactive ETFs. So I think there's a lot of white space for managers to come in and deliver active strategies, given that it's either so top heavy in ultra short products or a handful of equity products. So I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, opportunity on the active side. Just taking a step back here. You have a unique background. So you previously helped start up Lake Mason's ETF business. Prior to that, you were head of ETF Capital Markets at Vanguard, of course, the second largest ETF issuer in the country. But now here you are tasked with developing and implementing Federated's ETF business strategy. I'd love to hear more about those past ETF experiences and, and probably more importantly, maybe some lessons learned that you're now bringing or applying to Federated. Yeah, great question. And, you know, I, I've, I had the, the benefit of starting my ETF career, as you mentioned, at Vanguard. So being at an issuer with, that has that kind of size in the ETF business and being there kind of when it started or close to when it started and, and the ramp up, I had a lot of lessons learned coming out of that. You know, what worked, what didn't work. A lot of my focus, as you mentioned, on that was on the capital market side. You know, that you know, we, along with some other issuers, kind of evolved into that into that role. Um, and, and I had, the, again, a fortunate to being on the portfolio management desk, seeing what worked there, what didn't work. You know, fast forward to, to Leg Mason, the ability to come in and help an active manager um, who's getting in, in ETFs, you know, there's, there's a lot of lessons learned coming from, you know, at the time, the third largest asset manager in the business, now the second in ETFs. Um, you know, you're, you're able to bring a lot of that expertise. Come, come to Federated, and I had the exact same benefits of, you know, what, what worked, what didn't work um, at, at both of my former employers. And um, I'm, I'm able to kind of bring all those best practices to bear as we start to build out our ETF franchise. And, and I think that's really important, too, because post you know, not to get too, too nuts and bolts here, but post 6011, but the ETF role last year, the ability to understand 
how to efficiently run these products um, is really important to make sure that, you know, as a new issuer, you're using all of the capabilities that the ETF wrapper brings to the investment process. And a lot of that I had the capability, you know, my time at Vanguard, and then we we fine some tune we fine tune some of that in active at leg, and now I'm, you know I'm able to take all those um, experiences and really, you know, uh, I'll say uh, utilize those to the, to the best of our abilities here at Federated. In terms of capabilities and the ETF wrapper, of course, one of the uh, new capabilities over the past year or so is the ability to utilize a non-transparent wrapper. And you mentioned, you know, going back to the white space in ETFs and, and there perhaps being a lot of white space and actively managed ETFs in particular. I, I know there's a lot of debate in the industry right now about whether or not non-transparent will uh, be a wrapper of choice for a, a lot of active managers. Do you have any strong views here? I, I, I'll be honest, I've been skeptical of the non-transparent uh, wrapper. And thus far, we haven't, real, with a few exceptions, we haven't seen a tremendous amount of assets go into that structure. Uh, but is that something that Federated is looking at moving forward? Um, great question. And oh, here's what I would say. I would probably separate that question into two pieces. The, the first part being from the end investor's perspective, the, the client's perspective. I'm not sure they really need to get wrapped up too much in uh, whether a product is non-transparent or transparent. That's a bit of inside baseball that a lot of us have been in the ETF business for a long time. You know, we, we tend to get wrapped up on that, but I kind of look at it from a client's perspective. If the, if the market quality around a product is, is appropriate, I'll just say maybe that way. Um, if it's appropriate, I'm not sure it really matters if it's a transparent or non-transparent from the end investor, unless they obviously want to see transparency, et cetera. So, you know, I would hope at some point from an industry perspective, we get away from the non-transparent, transparent, because I think it adds some confusion to the end investor. To, to answer from a different different path, I think from an issuer's perspective, there might be reasons or rationale to use non-transparent um, on a given strategy, depending on the sensitivity. But I, but I think I would kind of a, agree with you that, you know, largely from an, a, a non-transparent perspective, the question just becomes, what value does it add to the investment process or, or what value does it take away from the investment process? And from our perspective, it's we, we may want to use it, but, you know, we got to we got to look and see what's right and in, in, in the best interest of the investor at the, at the end of the day. And I'll just note the two bond ETF filings that are out there. Those are in a transparent wrapper. They're fixed income ETF. So that makes sense. But I, I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, what about mutual fund to ETF conversions? Is that something on your radar? Uh, are, are there current federated mutual funds that perhaps could be candidates here longer term? Uh Mutual fund conversions, it's, I'd say it's on our radar. I, I don't think it's necessarily from an um, – take, take a firm like Federated or any of the larger active managers. I don't know if that is the panacea, I'll say, for a, for a large issuer to get into the business. There's a lot of nuance to doing conversions and that, that may or may not make sense for a, for a specific fund. And, and I'd, right off the bat, I would say, you know, historically, 401k plans have not been uh, a great structure to then take and try to put an ETF into. 
So if I've got a fund that's got a broadly diversified between advisors and 401k plans and, and others, that may not be a great candidate to try to do a conversion on because I likely am now taking away a choice from an investor, right? Because our focus is just making sure that we're delivering the vehicle um, that clients want to access our investment strategy and not take, a, not take it away. So, but that being said, there are probably, you know, and, and I think we've seen it, you know, in a couple of these conversions, there are probably going to be situations where it might make sense if, you know, if, if there's more demand on the ETF side or you're largely concentrated within a, a specific client type or it's a tax managed strategy that where the ETF tax efficiency can help broaden the tax efficiency of the strategy as a whole, mutual fund versus ETF. You would expect the ETF to be more tax efficient over over the long run. Brandon, just a couple minutes left here. So th- these two filings with the SEC, I assume those will launch here sometime soon. W- what's next? Do we just need to keep an eye on the SEC filing register? I know, I know we talked a little bit before about uh, you know w- what Federated's overall plans are here, but can you just talk about the future of ETFs at Federated? Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, the ETF effort is a is a bit of a marathon right it's uh it's not about how many products can we get out quickly you know given the the uniqueness of etfs and and especially launching them and and the ecosystem that uh supports them there does need to be a thoughtful build out as to how you launch and when you launch products um and that's probably one of my lessons learned as you know through my times of launching etfs you just can't show up with 15 products and and um, and and I'll say kind of overburden the, the ecosystem. So we're going to think about it. We're going to be smart about it. Ultimately, what you would expect to see is um, we'll bring existing strategies at some point into the ETF wrapper. You know, one of the I'll say one of our years term blank you know white spaces on our on our product line is definitely around the ESG space. And um, we have our products are ESG integrated, but we don't have what I would call more the ESG forward or centric products that clients are starting to look for now. Well, Brandon, I'll tell you that just from my perspective, I'm always excited to see a firm like Federated Hermes enter the ETF marketplace. Obviously, again, one of the leading global asset managers. Uh, I, I think it's a, a great endorsement of ETFs. I certainly wish you the best of luck in this endeavor, uh, but great connecting this week. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate the time, Nate. That was Brandon Clark, Director of ETF Business at Federated Hermes. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. I'm now joined by Luke Oliver, Managing Director and Head of Strategy at Crane Shares, who currently offers 36 funds, over $17 billion in global assets, including the single most popular China ETF, the Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, ticker KWEB, and also one of the biggest ETF success stories over the past two years, 
The Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF, ticker KRBN. Luke is now on the line with me from New York. Luke, great having you back on the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me back. All right, so look, you do have two of the more interesting stories in ETFs right now in KWEB and in Carbon. And let's actually start with Carbon, because I was looking at this over the weekend. This ETF has taken in over a billion dollars this year. It launched back in July of last year. Uh, but if I go back to January 2020, this ETF is actually one of the top 10 ETF launches since that time, which I, I think that might surprise some people given this isn't necessarily a familiar asset class, right? This holds what are called carbon credit futures contracts. Um, I, I guess let's start there. Explain that market for yeah. people who are unfamiliar. Yeah, and of course, that it, it is interesting that there's been so much success in a new asset class, but also by by definition, that's that's why it's been successful is that it's offered something new, and that's always as, a, as an issuer, you always want to innovate, you always want to give access to a new market. And so, so what, what's happening with carbon allowances? Carbon allowances, and there's, there's two main families of, of carbon products. One is carbon offsets, one is carbon allowances. What we focus on are carbon allowances, and what carbon allowances are are regulated schemes. These are the European Union, which is the California Air Resource Board. The, uh, China has a program. There is a program called Reggie Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in, in the U.S., the northeastern U.S., from Maine down to Virginia. These are programs where the regulatory body issues a set number, a cap, on the amount of emissions that can be um, uh, um, polluted into the atmosphere each year, and then they auction off and trade those allowances. And so it allows companies to purchase the ability to continue polluting while the rising price of these allowances incentivizes investment into green technology, switches to greener fuels, and you know ultimately what we hope for is, is, is lower emissions. And it's been a very successful program. And because it's a free market vehicle, it allows investors to actually participate. In fact, they're actually encouraged to participate because that's how price discovery works. So it's a, it's a free market, um, capital market solution to a global problem. And just to be clear, you mentioned the term carbon offsets. What's the difference between carbon offsets and then the, these carbon allowances or, or credits? Yes. Well, it's interesting because carbon allowances are the, the main vehicle here. It's the largest market. It's the most impactful market. However, most people think of carbon offsets when we start talking about carbon, uh, carbon products. So just to differentiate them, carbon offsets are voluntary markets. So nobody has to buy them, but companies are purchasing them in order to reduce their carbon footprint. So they're not reducing their emissions, but they're buying the carbon sinking ability of a forest or a wind turbine plant. And so anywhere where someone somewhere is taking carbon out of the atmosphere, they're able to sell that offset to a company to, to allow them to reduce their carbon footprint. So that's positive. However, it's voluntary participation, so we're not sure where demand is at different price points. And the supply is somewhat amorphous. It's not regulated. It's not standardized. That's not what's in our product. Very interesting, but it's not what's in our product. What's in our product is the compliance market, which is where actual governments around the world, and these programs are growing, this is what's been talked about at COP26 recently, is programs to actually limit the emissions. And so you have mandatory demand, somewhat inelastic demand, and then you have these falling caps that are regulated supply that is reducing. So you have this reducing supply 
and mandatory demand, and that's what creates the investment thesis for carbon allowances, which is what is in KRBN. Yeah, one thing I'm curious about with carbon allowances, again, so this gives companies the right to uh, emit carbon dioxide or, or equivalent greenhouse gases. How are carbon emissions from companies actually measured? Is that something you can speak to? Like, I'm curious how accurate those measurements are. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, when I first got involved in these markets, it was one of my first questions also. And, and the, the answer is quite short. It's not that difficult to measure um, the, the, the carbon output from a company. And so the way it works, Europe has each program is very slightly different. But Europe, California, two, two of the biggest programs that are, that are um, liquid, essentially the companies are responsible for reporting their carbon emissions. And then there are verified independent auditors that are that are approved by the you know so the european union in this case or the european commission will um accredit certain verifiers to then verify that and they verify that using you know metrics on you know energy use output so it's, it's actually quite programmatic quite uh you know systematic and and is not overly complex and overly controversial and so i kind of put it akin to something like taxation there's a process uh it's audited and, uh, and then it's executed. And so for every ton of carbon that is emitted, the entity must deliver one carbon allowance. Okay, so again, the Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF, this holds carbon credit futures. What else would you highlight uh, about the ETF itself, whether construction or, or otherwise? Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a 1940 Act ETF, so there's no K1. It's a, it's a, it will be reported on your, on your 1099. It holds three markets currently, that is Europe, European Union, sorry, the California Air Resource Board and the Reggie market, the three largest, most liquid markets. We anticipate that the UK market will probably be added to the index, which will be, you know, uh, by, before year end. We also have our eye, it's a global index, so it's, it, it, it does two things. One, it makes these markets investable in a single security, so it simplifies it from that perspective. It also aggregates the global price you know if you look in europe the price of carbon is trading at 70 euros you know so you know 80 dollars a ton and if you look at california it's trading at 33 dollars a ton and you look at reggie trades at 13 dollars what's the global price of carbon so we simplify that the index that we track the ihs market global carbon index consolidates all these markets and gives you that that global price so right now that kind of aggregated blended price is about 45 dollars a ton carbon, which is quite interesting when you look at the sort of consensus. You can see this in our pitch deck on online, but our consensus, the consensus forecasts are 100 to $150 over the coming years. So quite, quite compelling when uh, when you look at where this is priced today and how much growth potential there is. You mentioned owning the largest, most liquid markets here. Can, can you speak a little bit more about how big the carbon credit futures market is? Like, I'm curious as to whether there could be any underlying liquidity concerns with the ETF? Are there position limits like we've seen come up with the uh, the, the Bitcoin futures, for example? Like, wh- wh- what does the size of market look like? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. It's a growing market. So we, you know, part of our innovation is being early to market with this with this access so that anybody can access and not just institutions access the carbon markets. So when we look at them, um, there's a few, quite a few things to know. One, you have the carbon allowances them, themselves. And Europe alone is over uh, 100 billion in, in, in terms of you know a single year's cap of European Union allowances is over 100 billion dollars uh, in value. So large and growing market there. Then you look at the options, mar- uh, the futures market, 
And the futures market is trading over $300 billion a year at this point, up from about $250 billion last year. And when you look at the open interest in these markets, you know, the European Union is over $70 billion. Uh, California is over $5 billion. So growing large markets in terms of both futures and the, the underlying physical markets. And then the real key to note is that we're still in the early stages here. So the prices are still relatively low in most global markets. So China, for example, is trading about $7 a ton, and it's only just getting started, but it will be the biggest market in the world. South Korea, another large market. I mentioned the UK has developed and come a long way. And so what I expect is not only will the price rise and the volumes rise in these markets that we're already covering, I think there'll be new markets that cover greater geography, eventually taking up the whole earth, and then also more industries. So Reggie, for example, only covers power stations, whereas it could expand to some of the more polluting industries like cement, steel, glass, transport, aviation, uh, you, you name it. So there's a lot of growth, both organic and inorganic to these these programs. Before we move on to uh, China, I, I mentioned that this has been one of the most successful ETF launches over the past two years. It's really remarkable. But I, I'm very interested to hear, how are you seeing carbon being used in a portfolio? And, and I guess, what do you think have been some of the catalysts behind the big inflows into this ETF? Yeah, well, this is the most interesting part, is the initial attraction that investors have had is that you have this somewhat asymmetric risk. And let's not forget, carbon has been volatile. It's been more volatile than equities, but the returns have been there to support that. And, it, and the diversification is is also compelling and that, you know, correlations to historic carbon um, performance versus equity performance, the correlations have been uh, below 0.4 for equities, below 0.4 for commodities, you know, non-existent for, you know, fixed income or even, you know, uh, green technology or clean technology uh, firms, which some people sometimes kind of put in the same kind of theme. So the diversification benefits and the, the alpha potential are two of the primary reasons for people looking at this product. They see the asymmetric risk, i.e. you have this um, government policy which is designed to tighten and move the price higher in order to reduce emissions. And that is, is compelling from an investment perspective. Some people are looking at it as a diversifier. But this is where I think it gets really interesting is off those two primary allocations. So people are thinking about it in place of commodities as an alternative, as a pure thematic alpha play. But here's what's interesting. They are also looking at this as a hedge, a macro hedge to equities, because as carbon prices rise globally, this is going to start to impact all companies globally. So it makes sense to be long the price of carbon as it rises as a hedge to the impact that might have on, on the equities. Taking that one step further, if companies start to price this into their final products and pass that on to consumers, we may even see some inflation because arguably everything's been too cheap for way too long. We've never paid for carbon. Now it's being priced, we're going to see a correction. So we've, we've seen pensions take a lot of interest in, they start with those two primary objectives, but this really kind of supports the decision that if you are hedged against inflation, i.e. your long carbon, which may be influencing inflation, it makes sense, especially for you know retirement accounts. And so that's been a really interesting development that we didn't necessarily anticipate when we started, when we built this product, but that's developed as a really you know strong driver of investment. So you've got the performance expectations, you've got a diversifier, 
um, and you've got uh, an inflation hedge. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that this fits perfectly into an ESG impact type investment, which has also been a huge trend this last few years and I think will continue to be. Well, and I'll just add, I know you can't uh, talk performance, but I'll note the CTF is up over 90% this year, one of the better performing ETFs overall. That obviously uh, certainly helps with uh, grabbing investor attention and, and perhaps generating some inflows. I'll also note that CraneShares offers a European Carbon Allowance ETF, ticker KEUA, and a California Carbon Allowance ETF, ticker KCCA. Um, okay, Luke, with our remaining time, let's briefly talk KWeb. Again, the CraneShare CSI China Internet ETF. This has gotten a ton of headlines this year. I, I think it's one of the more interesting ETF case studies out there because you, you look at the CTF, it's actually down nearly 40% this year and down about 55% from its February high. But this thing has taken in nearly $8 billion in, in inflows. It's now over $9 billion in assets overall. You, you never see that. Um, what do you think is going on here? Can, can you explain this at all? Yeah, I mean, it's unusual. And, it's, uh, and, and we've been, you know, we've been as, as surprised in some ways as you in, in, in that normally flows follow, follow performance. But what's happening here is, is really unique in that the case for these companies incredibly strong. Um, back in February. And at these valuations, it, it's become very attractive. If you look at China tech versus U.S. tech, we're looking at PEs of 16 versus 33 for you know the Dow Jones uh, U.S. Internet Index. So the valuations look very good. And the other thing that, that really, uh, which I think is going on here, and this is something that we see at CraneShares all the time, because of our focus on China and EM, we're objectively looking at those markets all the time. And what we see and how that's represented in in press and in portfolios in the U.S. doesn't sync up. And so dare I say it, I think what we're seeing is smart money shifting towards um, this opportunity at, at these discounted prices. And so we've seen a huge amount. We've seen people um, buying calls. We've seen people going directly into the fund. We've seen a huge increase in participation. And I think when you look at what's happening in, in China, we still haven't got full saturation of, of um, uh, internet buying because don't forget this is what this fund you know primarily uh, focuses on is, is, is China internet companies and we've also got this growing middle class in China which has always been kind of the primary thesis for why you want to be positioned in in China and, and still today investors are underweight China so we're seeing that shift and the the kind of leaders in, in China will likely be these these internet companies. You mentioned the headlines here in the U.S. I'm curious, in terms of potential risks with, with K-Web, I just think about what I see in the media. I know there are concerns around the geopolitical climate, right? Tensions between the U.S. and China. Of course, earlier this year, we saw the Chinese government crack down on some of these uh, tech or Internet companies from a regulatory perspective. Evergrande has been in the news with fears that that could perhaps have some broader impact. Just... High level, how should investors think about potential risks here? Yeah, yeah. And so, so yeah, there didn't be a tendency to, to overinflate those, those risks when it comes to China. Certainly there are risks. We've seen the, you know, take, take start with the China crackdown. We've actually, and even this weekend, we saw some new fines, you know, minuscule fines, you know, under $100,000 fines to some of the biggest companies in the world. So nothing that economically affects them. But what we see is that as these fines are made and these these um, conclusions on the investigations are made, 
we're actually reducing uncertainty. And so we think that most of that's behind us. We think that in 2022, uh, Xi Jinping, if he gets, uh, you know, confirmed for a third term, all of these things will be behind us. And we think that, you know, we'll, you know, we'll be able to move forward more constructively. I think the even putting that behind us in China, and this is certainly a trade we've seen, with, you know, the U.S. tech versus China tech, as, as we see regulation almost coming out of the tunnel in China, potentially more regulation in the U.S., there's definitely a trade there to rebalance away maybe from the expensive U.S. names in, into China. Um, when it comes to, you know, Evergrande, you know, the, that restructuring is going through. We, you know, we, we did feel that that was somewhat, you know, too big to fail. And that would not be, you know, palatable in China. And therefore, we've, we've seen that somewhat be, be um, abated. Worth noting that we have a, a Asia bond fund. And that was, um, we, we didn't hold Evergrande. We'd actually, uh, you know, reduced those positions well before, um, you know, the, the big headlines around, around Evergrande. And it, of course, you know, geopolitical. I think I think that's generally broadly overblown. Um, and we, we, you know, it's nice, you know, kind of tying carbon in here, seeing China and, and the U.S. Uh, in lockstep and shoulder to shoulder on, on climate. Kind of gives you gives you somewhat of a, a more positive outlook on on the direction this is going and what collaboration looks like. And 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 I would note that this is this is I think quite a unique point to make. And we you know, we've made this at Crane which is these companies in KWeb don't rely on U.S. consumers. And so sentiment of U.S. consumers on these companies has, has no bearing. What you're really long is the, is the growing uh, spending power of, of, of Chinese consumers. Well, and look, I guess on that note, before I let you go, uh, similar question as I asked with the, uh, the carbon ETF. How do you view K-Web in a portfolio? Do you view it as a complement to core emerging market exposure? Or, or how do you see investors using this? Well, it's, it, it's investors are broadly underweight China. And for us, we see having a K-Web-like exposure and a KBA-like exposure, so mainland Chinese companies, as, as a, a complement to your core EM. If not, um, you know, I mean, taking that step further, our real view is that we need to separate China and EM. There's no longer one, one block. EM and China are, 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 two, are two blocks. So we'd like to see people um, moving China to its, its real market cap weight and expressing that through companies that are in KWeb plus the, the mainland companies that you get with uh, an ETF like KBA. So that's really where we, we'd like to see it. We, people need to break this out and they need to really take a view on, on, uh, on, on China outside of just allowing your EM allocation to do that because China is the second largest and very likely to be the largest economy in the world. And the fact that it makes up less than 5% of the average portfolio just just doesn't make sense. Well, Luke, excellent perspective as always this week. Uh, congratulations on all the success. Again, I, I feel like these are two of the biggest stories in ETFs right now in KWeb and in Carbon. But congratulations on that, and thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. Goodbye. That was Luke Oliver, Managing Director and Head of Strategy at Crane Shares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Randy Wassinger, founder of CryptoSlam. He's going to give us an inside look at the entire world of non-fungible tokens, NFTs. And then on ramps, Caitlin Cook will discuss the importance of crypto education and also get into NFTs and, and Bitcoin and everything else going on in the space. Until then... 
Have a great week, everyone.